Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Tablework, How New Plays Get Made, where myself and guest artists chat with new play theater makers about radical collaboration, the process of new play dramaturgy, and their vision for the now future. As the world and the theater rebuilds, rediscovers, and realigns, we're going to be a part of that. We are here to break down how we do what we do, to demystify the process of creation, to share tools to better the work, and to record what we discover. I'm your host, Amber Bradshaw. My pronouns are she, they, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as the managing artistic director. We are a support system for artists dedicated to forging the future of exceptional, inclusive, and boundary-breaking American theater. For more about WTP, check out www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Hey, Adaye. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Table Work. I'd like to start today by introducing y'all to our guest, Adaye Moon. Adaye is an Atlanta-based playwright, dramaturg, director, and cultural worker. He is the Associate Artistic Director at Theatrical Outfit and a co-founder of the new play development and performance collective, Hush Harbor Lab. Adaye has served as a resident dramaturg with working title playwrights at the Wilson Lab. He was the recipient of the 2015 International Ibsen Award for his dramaturgical work on the project Master Comic and the 2014 John Lipsky Award from the International Museum Theater Alliance for his immersive play, Four Days of Fury, Atlanta, 1906. Adaye was also a member of the Alliance Theater's 2015-2016 Riser Atlanta Artist Lab as co-writer on the immersive project, Third Council of Leons with Found Stages. His recent immersive co-collaborations include Frankenstein's Ball and Frankenstein's Funeral, both of which he he put together with found stages. An immersive community ritual entitled Cassie's Ballad was produced by found stages and Hush Harbor Lab in May and October of 2022. He is currently working on commissioned pieces for Out of Hands, Equitable Dinners, Actors Express, Teatro de Rev, and the High Museum of Art. Adaye received his BA in theater arts from Clark Atlanta University and an MFA in the playwriting in playwriting from the Professional Playwrights Program at Ohio University. He is a member of the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas, or LMDA, and the Dramatist Guild and the Fent Network. Adaye! Hey. <laughs> so Adaye, I think we met years ago. Oh my but... God. <laughs> I don't back, even remember. Back when you were a media apprentice <laughs> at Actors Express. Oh. <laughs> back when we were interns. Not a oh, that's right. It turns. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, but we really, we really got to know each other better when I started as the managing artistic director of Working Title, oh, yeah. and you were already dramaturging a lab when I started. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, the Ethel Wilson Lab is our twenty-nine hour workshop, um, and we always have a dramaturg work with our playwrights for a couple of months ahead of time, as well as have them in the room. So it's a really engaged process and you've done how many of those have you done oh, for Jesus. working so like five or six but this is such a, i mean the, the wilson lab is i think like one of the most 
precise development models that I've ever worked on um, in terms of gameplay development. So, oh, well, thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, so kudos for, for you know, working titles, structuring that development process. I think it, I think it works. <laughs> well, you know, since you say that, what, what works about it for you? Well, I, I think one of the things that I've always loved about it, uh, it is that it is a situation where the dramaturg and the director and the playwright are really, and, and also the actors as well, because the actors are also doing dramaturgical work in that process. Everybody has a voice in the process. Uh, everybody is really focused on helping the playwright get the draft that they want. And I think that kind of focus and that kind of dedication from everybody in the room is, I think, the ideal model for new play development. Yeah, I really find in this work that just helping people understand what their mission is right. in the development space right. is so... It's crucial. <laughs> it's like, we are all here to help this person tell the story that they want to tell. That's what everybody's job is. And so I, I think what that does is that it, it allows us to remove any kind of artistic egos because we're all here for the playwright. So, yeah. Absolutely. Set it aside and be of service. Yeah. Yes. I so agree. Um, so I want to start out by throwing out uh, like some different definitions of a new play dramaturg, uh -huh. right? Um, a lot of people have never heard of dramaturgy or new play dramaturgy. And, right. um, and new play dramaturgy is definitely a newer part of the field of dramaturgy and has really changed a lot in the past mm -hmm. 50 years. Um, from, you know, being sort of a practical editorial research historian right. to, um, to what we do, which is really about connection and relationship, right? right? Um, so I'm going to throw one out and then you can throw one out and we'll just, we'll just do that a few times. Okay. <laughs> um, a radical collaborator. Oh, yeah. Uh, a doula. <laughs> yes. A story doula. Yes, yes. <laughs> a question asker. Um, a provocateur. Ah, yes. Um, a shapeshifter, an adapter. A um, lover of story and supporter of new stories. Mm, yes, yes. And let's see. Uh, uh, an engaged observer. Ooh, a playwright's best friend. Mm, a superhero. <laughs> Without a doubt. All the capes, all the time. <laughs> that was fun. Awesome. Awesome. So in terms of your identity as a new play dramaturg, uh -huh. um, tell us kind of what that means to you and, and a little bit about some of the other identities that you identify with, that you resonate with. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I broadly I'm a theater artist. Um, I started out as, uh, actually I started out as an actor and a painter uh, with aspirations of becoming a filmmaker. And it wasn't until I got to um, undergrad uh, when I saw a production of an Adrian Kennedy play that I was like, okay, you know, I like this play thing. <laughs> I like this play thing. And so, uh, so, so, you know, and, and, and I was performing and it was cool and I enjoyed performing. But there was something about um, being able to create, I mean, it was really simple. Well, you know, at, at the time when I was in undergrad, which was in the 
early 90s, dating myself completely, <laughs> um, there were not a lot of roles for, for, for young Black actors. Like, th- there were no, like, young adult protagonists in Black plays at that time. It's really interesting because, you know, now we have Terrell and, and like, Katori mm-hmm. and, and some of Dominique's stuff. But at that time, like, you know, if you were a young Black actor, literally, like, you you know, you could probably do some, some Shakespeare and, like, maybe some other stuff, but you literally had to wait until you were old enough to age into August Wilson. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, and being a young, a young black actor, I was like, yeah, I'm, yeah, fuck this. So, so I really basically started writing plays uh, to cast my, cast me and my friends in. You know, that, so, so it was a really kind of selfish reason. But, but then I started realizing how much I enjoyed, you know, writing plays mm-hmm. um, and, and building these worlds and creating these characters. So, yeah, you know, that, that, that's how it started. And then Dramaturgy came many years afterwards when I was, a, I was a literary manager at Horizon Theater. And Horizon had a really robust new play development program called uh, the New South Festival. Yes. And, and it was a, an amazing program. Uh, and a lot of, like, really important writers had their work developed there. I mean, Lauren had her earliest stuff developed there. Mm-hmm. Marcus Gardley, Tanya Barfield. Um, so being the literary manager, I ended up becoming the development dramaturg for a lot of those projects. And so that's kind of when new play development dramaturgy started for me. And, you know, um, my love of it developed while I was a literary manager at, at Horizon. So I gotta give a shout out to Lisa Adler and, and Horizon Theater yeah. for opening that door for me. Yeah, yeah. And Marguerite Hanna. And Marguerite, great work who was there like, too. Yeah. yeah, who was like the love of my life. Oh, <laughs> we love you, Marguerite. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think too, um, you have mentored so many young playwrights. Yeah. And I guess it started then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and when I left, uh, Horizon and came back uh, to Atlanta after being in Florida for a while. Um, I was hired to to run the apprentice, the playwriting arm of the apprentice program there, and, and so that you know that was like essentially a great opportunity to meet and to work with a lot of young playwrights. So love it. That was a, and I did that for almost a decade. So it's a lot of writers. Yeah, that was a great program. Yeah, that was a really, fantastic really cool program. program. Yeah, young playwrights brought in every year and trained and yeah. just incredible. And then, of course, the apprentice program, several of the Horizon apprentices have become very successful Very successful artists, 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 artists yeah, mm-hmm. both playwrights and dramaturgs. So it's been, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're a big part of that. Yeah, I, I, I'm honored to have been a <laughs> Awesome, okay, great. Um, I know that you have a really cool exercise on creative practice. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that exercise. Yeah. So, oh, gosh. Because <laughs> we just did this a couple, couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that is really, really important for a playwright. Well, not a playwright, but, but for anyone in the theater to think about why it is that they do what they do. And so what I do when I do this exercise is to really get uh, the artist to think about, okay, you know, what does my practice mean for me, not just as it relates to my career, but as it relates to both, you know, this kind of personal 
this personal path. And if you want to, you know, get really kind of heady and woo-woo about it, a spiritual path, like, you know, mm -hmm. how are all these things in my life intertwined with my practice as an artist? Because I think articulating that, um, articulating that, like actually writing it down and like reviewing it and revising it over time, I have found is literally the fuel that keeps me going. Because it's very difficult to stick in this field, you know, when you have to deal with the realities of like not getting paid a lot of money. <laughs> uh, so you have to, for yourself, justify why you're doing it. And, 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 and so for this, this idea of articulating your creative practice, I think for me is, is, is a way to get an artist to, you know, both articulate all the, the needs that this, craft is providing for them and allowing space for that to shift and expand mm. um, over time and through time. I love that so much. Um, I often talk with my dramaturg friends about um, being an artist and a contributor in this space and not looking at your work as somehow the practical, logical, non-artistic side of things, right, right? Right, right, And I think, you know, it, and it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, this idea of dramaturgy, especially in the United States, it, you know, has been traditionally very limit, limited to like production dramaturgy, you know, to this, you know, doing research, pulling stuff together for the designers and the actors and the director. But I think dramaturgy, is so much more than that. Um, and I think once we realize what having a dramaturg in the room can do, not just for the new play development process, but for the production process, for the outreach and engagement process, I think theaters will be so much richer for it once they understand that, you know, this field of, you know, understanding story and helping to cultivate story, how that can like bleed into other things that a theater does. Um, but it's going to take a while to convince people of, of its value. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And that's fine. We got time. Yeah. <laughs> we got time. We're here for it. <laughs> We're here for it. It's part of what this podcast <laughs> is about. Let's talk about how we do what we do. Right. Um, because people say, oh, well, how do you, is there a structure for what you do? And I say, every single process is different. It's completely different. Every single one, because if you are working with the same playwright, it's probably a different play. Right. Right? Right. And so it's a different process. Right. And okay. I think the, the thing that connects every, you know, everything, I mean, for me, like even as a director, is the text. It's like, what's on the page? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the jumping off point for all of us. And so, um, as a dramaturg, being a person who, whose like main job is focused on what is happening in the text and how can we make sure that all the layers that, that's in that text are, are being illuminated for the actors, for the director, you know, for the playwright even. Um, it's really helping people to see what's both in the lines of dialogue and what's between the lines of dialogue. Mm, yeah, definitely. In terms of the creative practice exercise that you do, there was like, you had like words. It was like listing words that describe your practice. And then it was a list of like books or songs mm -hmm. or things like that, that also reflect that practice. Right, right. And I thought that was so cool. Yeah. I had never done it. So I got to do it with the class. And, and I was like, this is so fun to think about 
what exactly would be the description of my practice mm -hmm. and then thinking about the books that would connect to that mm -hmm. and that that would literally constantly shift constantly sh and, 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 and it is actually so, so so that whole exercise came from this older exercise called the milestone exercise where essentially like you you talk about all the milestones in your life but and, and i think the things that we love in terms of the art that we love the movies we love the songs that we love like what people don't realize is that we are drawn to things that reflect who we are. And so once you make a list, so simply making a list of those things, you get a lot of insight into, you know, your sweet spot as an artist. And again, as, as those lists, lists shift and change, your sweet spot shifts and changes and the way you engage in your practice shifts and changes. So I think, you know, for me, the, the first part is getting to know what those things are, yeah. you know, because we know them, but we never like really see them like written out. Yeah. And then once you start seeing the connections, it's like, oh, I love this movie and this song. And this totally relates to the kind of stuff that I create as a writer. Mm -hmm. So um, getting people to see how the things that they love are actually reflections of who they are mm -hmm. and, 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 and ideally guideposts to their creative path and process, mm -hmm. I found to be very, very helpful. That really speaks to like continuing artist education too, right? Yeah. Because like if what you're reading and surrounding yourself with is what is inspiring you, then make sure that you're shifting it up and you're adapting and you're trying new things and right. you're exposing yourself. And you're expanding like your horizon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think I, I think the more you see, the more you challenge yourself as both, you know, a writer, as an intellectual, as a thinker, as a human being. The, the more you like, you know, stretch out and like, you know, get your fingers and hands into everything, the more expansive the work that you create becomes. Love that. I love that about creative practice. I, I would encourage everybody to just sit down and like write down all the things that yeah. you think describe your creative practice and then like 10 things that you feel are references to that yeah. in some way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, make a list of those things that describe your actual practice then, you know, list your favorite books, list your favorite movies, list your favorite songs, and see where those intersections happen. And I think it's always surprising to see that there are intersections between mm -hmm. those things. So much so, yeah. Thank you for that. So, okay, so in terms of new play dramaturgy, mm -hmm. how do you like to get started with a playwright? Um, you know, how do you build a relationship founded on trust and respect? Mm -hmm. um, and what are some of your favorite ways of engaging? with playwrights yeah. uh especially you know, i'm gonna start with the last one first i, I mean I, I i think it's so important <laughs> that you approach any artistic or creative relationship as a genuine relationship mm -hmm. like you know i'm not just simply here to be your you know your your dramaturg but we're gonna become buds mm -hmm. let's hang out let's have a coffee let's just shoot the shit and and figure out how that relates to the work that you're working on. So I think mm -hmm. it's really important to like approach any kind of collaborative process with like genuine sincerity and open heartedness. Um, and I think that that's the first step. And, and then the next step for me then is, is figuring out, you know, what the writer is trying to accomplish with this next draft that they're working on. What are some of the questions that they have? Um, and once, you know, once we figure out what, what those, you know, what those questions are, what those objectives are, 
then um, I have this little like checklist that I give writers that drives them crazy. <laughs> um, and it's really a structural check checklist. And, 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 it's, and it's allowing them to look at the play through several different structural lenses and for them to like, just to write down and clarify what the story is from these different lenses. Mm -hmm. and, what, and what I found out is that they discover a lot about the play that they're writing that they didn't even consider before. Mm -hmm. And so once we get that checklist down and then we can really start talking about, okay, so what, what, what story are you trying to tell? And then my job is coming up with the questions that are gonna challenge them to think about the steps they need to get to that goal of telling the story they wanna tell. Right on. Can you talk a little more about the structural lens? Yeah, yeah, so, so you, you know, um, of course, we, you know, we live in the West, we were all, you know, kind of educated in the same kind of Eurocentric <laughs> idea about narrative structure, very Aristotelian. So there's an Aristotelian lens in this checklist, this kind of like, you know, free tax pyramid, which is kind of a riff on the Aristotelian lens as well. There's, you know, thinking about things like protagonist, antagonist, confidants and mentors. And, and then there's some other approaches that are less rigid and linear as well as part of the checklist, because I, I you know, I, I always tell people, you know, as a person that began as a poet, who was strongly against the idea of a Aristotelian structure. <laughs> um, I realized once I learned it, how helpful it is because the thing about that structure and the thing about linear structure is that even when things are non-linear, our brains are gonna try to make linear sense of them. So, so it's important for a playwright to know that this is how the audience is gonna view your work. So this is a lens that you need to know that they're gonna approach, most people are gonna approach it with this lens of trying to figure out what's the beginning, what's the middle, what's the end. Mm -hmm. And so once a playwright gets to look at and, and describe and explore the play from all these lenses, then um, it, it gives them, I think, more flexibility in terms of how they want to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're aware of what they're trying to do, but they're also really aware of what the audience is going to see. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a strong believer in this awareness and embracing of the audience as a part of the process. You know, um, we want to challenge them, but I also think we don't want to shut the door on them and dismiss them. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know what the audience is going to see in, in the experience. And, and so the checklist allows them to look at the story from these different perspectives. I think too, like, even if you don't like Aristotle, cause you know, you know, I'm the same way. I'm, yeah. I'm not a big fan, but, um, even if you don't like it, it's really important to understand it. You gotta understand, yeah. And be an expert in it, especially if you're a new play dramaturg, because that is the that is the structure that most American audiences are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So if you decide to do something that is different, you're actively using the structure of the play to challenge. Exactly. And that is how you're acknowledging the audience, right? It's like, right. this is different. This is different. I always think of when I first saw Memento, it was one of the first movies that right. did what it did. Right, right. And I remember thinking, I have no clue what's happening. Mm -hmm. I I really don't know what's going on. And, and that is so not the point. And right. I get that. Right. But I, you literally spend the entire time linking the story together. So you're trying, they're breaking it up. So you have to link it together. Mm -hmm. 
And that it reminded me of that when you were talking about the structural stuff, because Memento is trying to disassociate you from the structure so that you experience what he's experiencing. Right. 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 So literally, and that's why as a dramaturg, I talk about structure a lot. I'm like the structure of your play is based on how you want it told, how you want it heard and what the content is. You shouldn't just sit down and say, I'm going to write a play play about this. And it's going to be in this structure. Right, right. It's like, no, no, no. The structure needs to align with the content and with the align. audience and with the theater and with the, the moment. All of it has to align. Exactly. And, and, and I would say, you know, you know, getting back to the idea of like, you know, expanding what you read and what you experience, like learn as many different structures as possible because there's no one structure for telling a story. I mean, they fluctuate depending on the culture. So it's like, you know, Read plays outside the culture. Read plays that you hate. Yeah, uh, that's something I tell a lot of my students all the time. I'm like, you don't have to like every play. No. <laughs> you don't have to like every production. Like, you know, read and see things that you don't necessarily like because you're going to learn something from it. Uh, if you're open to it, you're going to learn something from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think you know the, the the thing with linear structure and Aristotelian structure is, is that I I feel like you got to understand it. To break the rules you gotta mm-hmm. you know master this like you know this common way of approaching narrative in order to play around with it and and, and implode it yeah definitely and it, it makes me also think of you know for for those who are like huh this is interesting what might be some resources and i would say susan laurie park's essays on style yeah um the elements of style specifically, but her and the, the three series of essays is really incredible where she talks about how she builds her own structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, as a dramaturg, when I'm working with people, that's what I encourage them to do is you need to create the structure that works for you. Right. Um, and because you're often going to find that the ones that are out there may not have what you're looking for or may not fit. Right. Right. And depending on what, what culture you hail from, the way stories are told can be just wildly different. I mean, right now we're working with a playwright who is a coda, right? So both mm. of both of their parents right. um, speak sign language and are, are hearing impaired. And so that makes sense yeah. because this playwright uses imagery mm. and sign literally like Oh, the story is wow. being told in just a lot of different ways. And text is really just one of them. Right. And right. when they shared with me that that was their background, I was like, of course, you right. speak more than one language. Right, right. And the other one that you speak is based entirely on visuals. That right. is so beautiful. And we have, to, we have to understand, too, that, like, visuals are, that's also text. Like, text isn't just what's written. Like, I, I mean, mm, te- I mean, yes. text, text is really like, I, I mean, whatever the, con- you know, I, I always use Beyonce as an example because, because I think, you know, what she, you know, and, and I truly believe, believe that Beyonce is not a person, but a team, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think what, what, what that team does, like in, in terms of both the visual elements, the performance elements, the actual songs and lyrics themselves is that. You know, Beyonce is giving us multiple texts that are layered on top of each other, mm-hmm. and so the 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 beauty and the depth and the breadth of like, especially you know, her I would say starting with Lemonade and, and stuff afterwards is because is is this awareness that text is happening on several different levels. It's not just what is written. 
It's also what we see. It's what we experience. It's what we hear. And so I think the more we understand that text, you know, isn't just about words, mm-hmm. the fuller our, you know, creative expressions on stage will be. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I'm still waiting for that video album to drop, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, she hasn't done it Where's yet. Where's the video yeah, album? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I don't know if, I know other people have done video albums, but um, just the way that, she aligns all of the things. Yeah, but like yeah, she's doing. I, I, was, I, 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 I was watching the homecoming concert the other day, and I was oh, like, "This fucker!" I was just like, Absolutely. "Literally, you do a concert that like embraces all of these performative elements of Black culture into one fucking concert." Like it was, it was, it's brilliant, and it's saying yeah. so much about both the resilience of the culture and the complexity of the culture. But but you know, and I think you know. <laughs> And I feel strongly about this as it relates to theater. I think, and and especially as it relates to theater in Atlanta, and this has been like, you know, something I've been saying for years. I want Atlanta theater to be as rich and complex as the the city's music is. Mm -hmm. You know, the music is so, you know, rich and complex Mm -hmm. and, and, and vital. And I want the theater that's being made in the city to be as rich and complex as vital as the music that comes out of this city. I love that. And I think that's a really good challenge for Atlanta. Yeah. You know, because Atlanta's known for, for music. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, and I think it's uh, it's time we sort of connect with what's here yeah. and really tell the stories of this place, which I have been saying since I started running Working Title is, I'm Southern. I'm from Atlanta. Yeah. I have a particular um, interest in Southern stories being yeah. told um, in a way that I think is authentic, which I see almost never, especially in TV and film. Everybody's right. like from Alabama. Right. And right. Um, they're all the same. And it's just it's just so boring. Right. Um, right. So part of it for me is always about getting Southern writers to tell their stories so that the rest of the world understands who we are. Who we actually are. And, 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 yeah. and, and you know, like, I mean, I mean, one of the, the, the primary reason why I even applied for the job at Tito um, was that I knew that there was, there was a shift, that a shift towards new play development. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're about to launch the Made in Atlanta series. And the idea behind Made in Atlanta um, from the very beginning was that, you know, we want to commit to helping to develop stories from Atlanta-based artists and Southern artists, you know, in a more expansive sense, but also like to really, you know, develop a canon of work that is coming out of this city and that's coming out of this region of the country. Um, and to really challenge this idea of what a Southern writer is, mm-hmm. uh, which has normally been, you know, white male, um, and, and so this idea of deconstructing what it is to be a Southern writer and, you know, and, and this idea that there's no one South either, there are multiple mm-hmm. Souths. <laughs> and, and so how can we, you know, be uh, an organization that helps to facilitate a space where these stories are developed and told and presented? Um, because I think that's also part of the, the new play development process is that these shows are actually fucking produced. Yeah. And not simply, you know, caught in development hell forever. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about the Made in Atlanta program. Mm-hmm. You have some readings coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so before I started at the theater, um, uh, Matt Torney, who's the artistic director, commissioned a piece uh, by a writer out of um, uh, D.C., Song, to create a piece about uh, a hip hop musical about young John Lewis and the early years of John Lewis's life uh, from his decision to, um, you know, fight for injustice up into the point of um, Dr. King's assassination and the riots that happened afterwards. So like, you know, just a real small snippet of his life. Uh, so, so that's one of the pieces that, that um, we're developing from scratch. Another piece is this amazing play by uh, Megan Tobach called Marami Bruno Mars that I first saw at um, Emory's Brave New Works Festival. And it blew my mind because it's funny, it's quirky, it's weird, it's heartbreaking. It is loosely based and inspired by um, the tragic incidents of a couple of summers ago at um, these massage parlors where, where these women were, were murdered. Mm-hmm. and But it approaches it from such this amazingly gentle and sympathetic angle. Uh, And so when I saw it, I was like, this is an Atlanta show and an Atlanta show we haven't seen before. And it would be great if, you know, T.O. jumps on board to help support this work. And uh, the the third project is uh, um, uh, uh, Leo Sario's uh, Prophets Canyon, which, which was, you know, initially developed. Uh, at the Unexpected Play Festival, which is the festival that T.O. does in collaboration with Working Title. And so Lee is um, presenting, uh, I think, the first reading of it at, at, at a church. And so uh, we're, we're just really, you know, providing some, you know, uh, rehearsal support and, and dramaturgical support and production support mm-hmm. on our, our end because we really love the piece. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and again, it's like, you know, we want to support Atlanta-based artists as much as we can. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Those all sound like really cool projects. And the Made in Atlanta program, is that like an ongoing program? It's going to be ongoing each year. Uh, so, so there's going to be a, a festival situation. But also, like, throughout the year, we also want to do readings and development workshops of other plays that we're interested in. But, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know... Um, I think the question that we ask ourselves is like, you know, how can we help, how can we, you know, as a theater company help to make Atlanta a center for new play development? And I I think we have everything in place to make that happen. And it's about, you know, collaborations with other folks who are doing this work as well to make sure that that becomes a thing because I totally think it's possible. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that you and Matt are so committed uh, to that is amazing. Um, And, you know, I hope that more of our producers get on board with um, realizing that supporting the community will return. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, I I think, you know, we've always struggled. I mean, I I think all communities struggle with the idea of community, but I I know from being here for so long, that's always been a, you know, struggle uh, really seeing that we are a community. We're all interconnected in some way. Mm-hmm. There really is no, com- I mean, there's competition if you want, if you want there to be competition, but we, we all are kind of doing our own thing and we should be there to support each other. And especially if a part of that support is creating a space for artists in the city to create work. 
Mm-hmm. I think we should all be like right there making sure that that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, this idea that we're in competition is just so unfortunate to yeah. me. It's like, yeah. We are here as collaborators yeah. and we cannot do theater alone. Right. And this is one of the few arts that you literally cannot do by yourself. You can't. You, can. <laughs> you know. And I I love that about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. we can even have a cast and everyone else we meet, but if there's not an audience member, there's not a show. There's not a show. And and, and, and again, and so the audience is also a part of that process. It's like, you know, how can we cultivate these audiences? How can we educate these audiences? I mean, the audiences, for me, the audiences in this city are as important as the artists in this city. Mm-hmm. And so how can we bring everybody to the table and just like, you know, and have a good time, you know, sharing story, mm-hmm. um, you know, sh- sharing narrative. And and and, and so, so, so on one end, this development, you know, developing this kind of Southern dramatic canon is really, really important to me, but also like this idea of playing around with, you know, what's, what's an Atlanta aesthetic in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, the stories we tell, mm-hmm. you know, there's definitely a Chicago aesthetic. Like I know that aesthetic really well. <laughs> like I can read a play and I'm like, this writer's from Chicago. Right. There's a New York aesthetic. So it's just like, so, you know, so, 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 so the question, and not saying that we have to be rigid and fix, you know, and make one aesthetic, but the question is like, you know, what might an Atlanta aesthetic be? And how might writers and artists, uh, you know, writers and actors and directors and producers play around and explore in that playground of what could potentially become an Atlanta aesthetic as well? Love it. I love that. That's great. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, letting people know that theatrical outfit really does want to be a place where community is welcome and um, and that they're y'all are accessible. Yeah. You know, reach out, reach totally, out to people, totally. ask, ask for coffee, ask get for to coffee. know the staff. I mean, Matt is brand new, you know, he yeah. started literally the pandemic year. So he's still meeting everybody. And yeah. I think there's, um, there's just so much discussion that we can all be doing with each other about what, what our struggles are and how we connect with each other. Like, what does your audience want? What does your audience want? I right. mean, um, my organization is, is, just now starting to plan a listening tour for early next year because mm-hmm. we haven't done one since I started seven years ago. And we really are, you know, obviously we're a service organization. So for us right. specifically reaching out and saying, what do you need? What do you want? How can we serve you? Is something we should always be doing, but mm-hmm. I really feel like all the producers uh, could really use some of that so that they understand what kind of support would be useful to mm-hmm. the community um, sometimes I think we offer support and we're not yeah. offering the right kind and we just don't know. And it's just a matter of talking with each other mm-hmm. about what's, what's needed. You know, one of the things Matt talks about a lot is, you know, the theater being empty and wanting it to be, have people in it when, right. when, when the producer is not in there. You right. Know? right. And so this idea of we have these buildings with space. Mm-hmm. How can we share them? You know, and how that, can I mean, come and, together? and that you know, theater should be a, a space not simply to see shows, but it should be a, a, a place where you know, where community, where people hang out, yes. where people want to be. I, I mean, I, I was a part of this amazing project that Alabama Shakes did a couple of years ago, where uh, Rick Dildine, who's the artistic director, he took a, uh, I think, I think it was, it was five or six uh, Southern playwrights, and we went to different cities throughout the South, and 
talk to people about what it is to be Southern. Because the, the whole idea about it was that, you know, we wanted to see, you know, and I think that theater in particular wanted to know, but also as, as writers, we wanted to know what kinds of stories did people who lived where we lived and worked, what kind of stories did, did they want to hear? Like, what were the things, what were the stories that, that weren't being told? You know, and I think it's really, you know, that that's why I think, you know, being aware of the audience, the audience's needs is so crucial mm-hmm. for, for, for people in this art form, because it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're doing this for an audience. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily like cater to all, all the audience's whims. We should definitely know what it is that they want to see mm-hmm. uh, and what it is that, that they value. And, um, and, I, and I think once we really start factoring that in, we'll get more people, more butts and seats. Mm-hmm. Once we start factoring in what people actually want to see mm-hmm. and, and the stories that they haven't heard, but they want to hear. Yeah, because I, I I think we've just scratched the surface. You know, it really becomes from a producer's perspective, you know, in terms of like programming for a season, it kind of becomes rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. You know, your musical, your classical show, maybe, maybe a new work, mm-hmm. but usually a new work that's been done in Chicago or New York first. <laughs> but, you know, not something that's brand new or world premiere, but something that's been done someplace else and it's been tested. Mm-hmm. So it's like, Okay, that's you know, and, and 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 I understand that model and why it's financially feasible, but also too, it's like, but what does the audience where you are? What do they want to see that they haven't seen? What might bring people who don't normally come to see theater come and experience something in your space? And I think those are the questions we have to start ask, answering and asking. I mean, I I often think one of the issues, you know, as as a person who's queer and and who doesn't see a lot of my queer people in the theater. It's like one of the things I think is holding theater back is just theater. Yeah. Like this concept of what theater. theater is. Exactly. Right. Um, you know, in the queer community, a lot of our queers are in the performance art world. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's not any different than theater, no. but they think it's different. Yeah. Cause when I talk to people about it, there's a specific difference for them yeah. in the experience that they have. And so I think something I'm always looking for is a way to help people know that when I say theater, I'm talking about experiencing live performance generally. Exactly. And like, you know, that just means it has a narrative with it. That's yeah. all, you yeah. know? And, and this, this limiting idea of we're going to go, there's going to be a proscenium stage. We're going to sit in the dark. Quietly. We're going to be quiet. Yeah. Right, right. It's right. like, I'm like, I love going to see shows where people are active and talking. And, and some other people might not like that, but I love it. I love, so, so you know, I, 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 I've, I've had the honor of spending like the last couple of years doing a lot of immersive work. And the thing about immersive work that's exciting for me and has always been exciting is that the folks that come to immersive experiences aren't normal theater goers. And so you get to see these folks who who would not normally come and see a show experience something. And I really think we have to accept the fact that the term theater is elitist as fuck. Yes. And it turns people off. You know, I know we love it, but it turns people off. So we really need to think about, okay, what narrative-based experiences are we creating for our audiences? How can they be involved in these experiences? It's not simply about seeing the show. 
And so I think we have to conceptually start thinking that way in order to draw people in. Because I think if, if we continue to see, you know, to strictly see what we do as, you know, theater, as this very kind of elitist art form, it will no longer exist in this country. Mm-hmm. It's not financially feasible for any artist that's involved in it. I mean, this country does not support theater. Um, I've been spending some time in Canada and I'm like, oh, they really support, they really support theater. Yes. <laughs> so I'm just like, but that's not happening in America. And I don't think it's happening anytime soon. So I think really theaters need to start thinking about, okay, how can we create experiences for people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and seduce them into this world of theater? Mm. You know, that doesn't mean we stop doing the classics and we stop doing other things, but I think we really need to expand I, our idea of programming and what programming mm-hmm. entails. And it's not simply putting up a fucking show and doing a talk back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much more involved. Um, it's about creating relationships. It really, really is with, with your audience, with other organizations in your community, with the artists in your community. If you're not creating these relationships and building these communal experiences, then you won't last. Mm-hmm. I just think that's, that's where we are right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think um I think right now is also just a really challenging time for all the producers, you know, this, you know, really having to figure out what what they need to do next, right? And um you know, working titles in a place of not having our own space and being pretty flexible, you know. So, you know, we hope that as we grow, we will grow towards what the future can sustain rather than something that's behind us, you know? So I I encourage all producers to really start thinking about how to sustain um, as growth, like to to grow into new audiences and new ideas about what we do, you know? Um, And to not be too limited and too held back um, and maybe to find ways of cutting back on things that are holding you back, literally, you know? like. Um, working titles always had a dream of having our own space. That would be great, but the amount of stress that it would be to to do that, you know, is just too much. And so that's why it's it's so wonderful that we now have uh, this relationship with theatrical outfit, where yeah. we are in residence with with theatrical outfit, and and that is our home. Um, and yet we get to be separate entities, right. you know. So there's there's a really exciting growth for us there. Because we have to stay adaptable. Right. And the big, it just seems like the bigger these companies get, the harder and harder it is for them to do anything, you know? Um, and to see what Theatrical Outfit is doing with the Made in Atlanta program, you know, it's not just this one thing. It's like one of your foundational programs. Right. Right. right it's right. not like we right. wrote this grant for this new play festival, so we're going to do it this one year. This one year. And then, and, and then, and, then and, and never time. again. And, and, and the, the, the big goal, you know, maybe four or five years years in the future, is that each season we should be producing shows that either come out of Made in Atlanta or Unexpected Play Festival. Absolutely. At least one or two a season. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the most logical progression of, yeah. of, 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 of this. And and that's definitely something that I'm personally pushing for. Because because otherwise, why the fuck do it? Like, you know, you know, uh, if, if, if we're not willing to put our money behind these shows and get them on their feet, then to me, you're paying lip service to new play development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
new plays need building blocks. Yes. And a new play incubator like Working Title can only do a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Um, producers have to chip in. They have to be a part of that process. And if they aren't, there won't be new plays to develop, to, to, to produce because the support isn't behind them. You know, um, I mean, we see a lot of playwrights have relationships with theaters, you know, but those people are usually at a much higher level of their career. Right. You know, so if you look at someone like Tracy Letts and you go, oh, well, Steppenwolf does everything that he does. Okay. Well, he's a step, but a lot of people don't realize that about Tracy Letts, right? A lot of people don't know Rebecca Gilman was a Goodman playwright quite a while right. you know and a lot of these playwrights have homes where they get to develop things and where producers invest in them mm-hmm. right and i think that's part of where the the miscommunication is in mm-hmm. the new play development world is whose whose responsibility is this right and how do we make it come to fruition and right. i think the answer is everybody's everybody's right? responsibility and that's part of it goes back to what you said originally about what Working Title is doing with the Ethel Wilson Lab is everybody in this room mm-hmm. is a part of this process and everyone's voice matters. And when we say that, we actually yeah. mean it. We actually mean it. It's not just lip service, right. you know, um, but we also have rules of engagement that we set in place. We have facilitators. We always have a dramaturg in the room. Right. And so it allows for that openness because there is a structure in place that lets people know what the mission of that workshop is. Right. 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 And I think sometimes people get lost in the process of new play development because they don't have the structures in place and they haven't put the building blocks where they need to go before everybody is in the room. I mean, one of the things that I find I have to do when I am creating a new play development workshop Mm -hmm. is all the artists need to know what's going on. They right. need guides, they need support, they need introductory meetings where mm-hmm. they meet with each other and they can ask questions. Like right. new play development is not structured in one way. It's not, but 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 I will say this, and this is probably gonna be controversial. <laughs> I feel very strongly about this. If a dramaturg is not in the room, you are not doing new play development. Mm-hmm. You are deluding yourself. And it, I am shocked and appalled <laughs> um, how there's so many situations in which, you know, people are saying that they're doing new play development and a dramaturg is not in the room. I'm not talking about the literary manager at your theater. I'm talking about a dramaturg who's not associated with your theater. I'm not talking about a producer. I'm talking about an independent dramaturg in the room who is a part of this process. Um, if you're not doing it, then you're not doing new play development as far as I'm concerned. And you're also not doing anything that's really gonna benefit the playwright because your focus then is going to strictly on what's producible and what's not, and not on the actual development of the story itself. Yeah, and I also hear you saying too, like it's not somebody on staff because generally a dramaturg should be selected per project. Exactly. So if you're hiring someone on staff and just assigning them three of the productions that year, no. That's not aligned That's with not doing aligned. the work That's in a way aligned. that is authentic or really healthy, even right? Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I mean that, that 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 person then becomes kind of a default producer too, and that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's not a healthy situation mm-hmm. in a new play development process. I mean, not the producer has its role definitely, but in a development process, it needs to be someone who is not necessarily affiliated with the theater or someone who who is clear sighted enough to put their producer hat to the side. 
and focus on what the playwright needs and wants. And I would even go so far as to say, it's really important that the director in that space understands that their role as a new play director mm-hmm. is a different one. Is a different one. Than when they are directing a fully produced show. Right. Same is true for the actors. I mean, I think for me in a new play development process, both the director and actors are also dramaturgs in mm-hmm. the room. Yeah. You know. Right. So this idea of like people that want to bring ideas into the room that are not part of the text, you know, that's going to, that's not going to align with the process, you know? Um, Absolutely. I agree. And it might be controversial, but let's just keep saying it. (laughs) Just keep saying it and maybe eventually. There's not a dramaturg in the room. You're not doing doing new play development. development. You're not. You're not. And and, and also too, I think, you know, Atlanta is in a very interesting thing right now. And And I think, in the theater community, we have to deal with the reality that this is also a film town. Yes, it is. And and not sort of shy away and be intimidated by it, but actually embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm curious, you know, we already know that the film and TV world is taking all the fucking American playwrights. So, you know, my question then becomes, you know, what might be a dramaturg's role in those mediums yeah you know how might they function in those mediums as well and i think mm-hmm. that's you know and also too you know how can theaters it, especially i don't think talking about atlanta specifically because of the, the dynamics of the film industry here you know how can theaters be in collaboration with with folks that are producing film and television Absolutely. i i think not thinking about that is detrimental will be detrimental mm-hmm yeah, no, I agree. I think there's there's so much collaboration yet to even figure it out between the film, theater, and television communities mm-hmm. in this city. I mean, we have people ask us that a lot of the time. Can we bring in screenplays? And I'm like, yeah, it's it's right. text, like it's it's, it's right. dialogue, right? right. Uh, sometimes when things are really stylized, it doesn't work as well. Um, or, you know, like I've dramaturged some some screenplays and I was I was very interested in how different the structure was. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Which, which I thought was fun. Yeah, it's right? a visual medium. So, it, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's really yeah. interesting the way it's like by take, yeah. you know? Um, so there is, structurally, there's a difference because as a dramaturg, the structure is kind of already in place a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Whereas you're more clarifying and making sure the the full story is being told right and like that the arc is working and all of that stuff it felt the same i felt like i used a lot of the same tools you know i do think i had i went more into my visual and i watch and i watch tv and film right so um you know i'm not like most theater people who like won't watch anything i only Um, read and watch plays i only read books no (laughs) actually only read plays i listen to books um but yeah, so I, I really think that it's very similar. And so why not collaborate? Right. 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 right? And actually, I think there's so much uh, exciting stuff to learn um, that I have no idea about that's all screenplay oriented that I would just love to get into. So right. yeah, I think it I think it very much aligns. And it does make me wonder what we can what we can develop, you know, I've had people reach out to me here and there. We've even thought about developing an arm of screenwriting for working title, but it's like, we're just not sure. So that's kind of part of what the listening tour is like, is that something that's probably going to be one of the questions Yeah, is, is that something that would be interesting to people? Um, Because I, I, I'm concerned that if we don't 
make those connections and develop those relationships in this city in particular, because I've seen it happen in other places, we're literally going to lose playwrights. Yeah. Yeah. Because the money's too good over there. <laughs> and why deal with the foolishness and fuckery of theater when you can deal with the foolishness and fuckery of TV and film and make more money? So it would behoove us to try to find a way to build those bridges so that, you know, people, I, I, I mean, I had a, I had a conversation with three younger theater artists that I really respect. And, and, um, you, you know, they were all saying like, you know, we're committed to, to being in Atlanta, to being Atlanta based artists, and we're committed to doing, you know, and they're all doing like a lot of TV and film, but they're also committed to doing theater as well. So it's like, I mean, to me, that was exciting. So I'm like, how can we make sure that that remains a thing? Because it's it's easy. It'll be easy for us to lose people. And I don't think we can afford to lose any more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always think that if we can make the experience of making theater as, as exciting as it yeah. can be, then we can beat those TV and film people every day. And the thing is, we have to make it exciting because we can't make it more financially lucrative. No. So it's like, yeah. so not we, unless the government completely changes. Yeah. Right? So it's like, so it's like if we can't make it more financially lucrative, then we have to make it exciting. Exciting, engaging, engaging connected, connected. Like it needs to, like that. It needs to be sexy as fuck. And, yeah. and, if it, and if it's not sexy as fuck, then really, I mean, people are are going to stop coming to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that actually makes me think of the show that I saw last night, yeah. uh, Hurricane Season with by Vernal and Sear. And I think there's a lot to be said for looking at Vernal and Sear's model. Oh, definitely. Right? definitely. And um, because they're doing really exciting new work all the time. And, and honestly, whether you understand or like the content has very little to do with the experience for me. Right. Because the work is so in-depth. It is so thorough. You can tell they've rehearsed. You can tell they're connected. Mm -hmm. You can tell they have thought through every single moment. Mm -hmm. And they have made choices. Right, right. And I often find that no choices are being made when I see things. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? Did Mm -hmm. anybody talk about this? Yeah. And our rehearsal processes are so short now. Yeah. And, and, How and, do these actors connect? And what what they're doing as a young company that I'm really appreciating, and it's very much a like European model, mm-hmm. where it's like these artists are involved in this collaborative process for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, sacrificing a lot of other projects to work on a project. And so you end up with something that even if it's like crazy and wild and experimental, it's so vibrant, it's so alive. Mm -hmm. And again, if we can't give the audiences that, because that's what we can't, that's what theater does. That's that's like theater's strong point. And if we can't give that to them, then what are we doing? doing? Exactly. You know? Exactly. Everything to me ends up being about the intent of each single artist. And if they are fulfilled and excited and like just thrilled to be there, mm-hmm. then every member of that audience should feel the same way. Sure. Right. And that is what I experience when I go see Bernal and Sear shows. Right. And it's often what I experience if it's uh, a theater company that's maybe recently formed, maybe a year or two, 
they're got a lot of energy going. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not beaten down by the government funding yet. Right. You know, there's still a, a level of ecstasy to that. You know, I think the key for me as an artist mm-hmm. is maintaining that ecstasy. Yeah. Is figuring yeah. out a way to not let all of the limits and boundaries stop me from doing what I know is like what I should be doing. Right. Yeah. Um, and to find myself in spaces where I feel really good because I, there's no other reason to be doing it. Right. Right. And if we're coming into a space and we're not enjoying it, and then we're sharing that with an audience, then we're also not doing them a service. We're not, we're not. And there's this wonderful book that I want to recommend because, because I, I, I'm obsessed with it. It's called uh, theater of the unimpressed by Jordan uh, Tannehill. And he's a Canadian playwright, but in the book, he really talks about, um, and, and I love this idea, uh, this idea that like small theaters, as opposed to mid-sized theaters or large theaters, have so much flexibility in terms of the, what they can do. And I used to give this book to apprentices in um, Horizon's Apprentice Program because it is my dream <laughs> that everybody who's in an apprentice program in this city or who was a young artist coming out of undergrad starts a theater company. Mm. This city needs more young theater companies. Yes. Um, yes. And even if they don't last a long time, it just needs to constantly be churning out young theater companies mm-hmm. because that's how theater, you know, theater remains and becomes vibrant, not because of companies like Theatrical Outfit, but it's the young theater companies and the new theater companies that keep theater alive. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, I would encourage, especially younger theater artists, it's like, don't fucking waste your energy auditioning for all these shows, all these other theaters. I'm saying that as a person that does casting. But yeah, still, <laughs> but, don't, but, 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 but no, go out there and make some shit and find mm-hmm. a space to have it done. Um, that is the most us- powerful thing that, 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 that we can do. And a lot of us who are where we are now, like our, like you and I. That's how we started. That's how we started. <laughs> that's literally how we started. Literally. Yeah. So if people ask, how did you get known mm-hmm. and why were you offered this job? It was because I was producing my own work and I was producing the work of other people. Right. And it was different every time. Mm-hmm. And I still filled my theaters and I still did my marketing and got everything done. Right. And people saw that. Right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and that's. And then you get to you get to make mistakes right. and you get to try things and be in practice because I know dramaturgs love to talk. Yeah. But I really love practice. Yeah. And um and I find that I learn best when I am actually doing, doing the thing. Yeah. You can read all the books in the world, Thank but you. they're not really gonna help you figure out what actually you need to know about yourself when that things get really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And you are in charge. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I think that's a hard thing, especially for like, I guess, academically trained dramaturgs. Yeah. To understand it's like, you know, it, it's great to know all the theories and to have all the ideas and to be very logical and, and linear in your thinking. But if you ain't actually creating no shit, <laughs> then I, I don't know what service that you're serving to the theater community mm-hmm. uh, uh, other than, you know, writing for academia. Yeah. So it's like, you know, what are you creating, you know, or, or, or what are you helping to facilitate yes. and, you know, someone else to create. So, and um, that's a great point too, is like, 
a lot of the dramaturgs working in new play dramaturgy today trained themselves, learned how to work with playwrights by practicing. By practicing. That's and the only way to learn. One of the reasons I'm training new play dramaturgs now is because I would hope that we could avoid some of the mistakes I made. Yeah. Um, because they were painful <laughs> and not just for me, right? So there, there are mistakes and they will always be made. But if you can find a way to train, yeah. especially if you're interested in new play dramaturgy and you want to learn more about it, um, I really encourage people to find any, like find a bunch of new play development spaces that you're comfortable in and just like listen to people give feedback, listen to how mm -hmm. the room is run, you know, acknowledge what the things are that you think are working. Right. Yeah. And, and that's where you want to be. And that's how you learn how to be a dramaturg. You observe and then you eventually put into practice the things that you are watching and learning other people do. Right. You know, like our one of my favorite programs that Working Title does is our Monday night development workshops. And that's because you can literally come and listen to people give feedback for two hours. Two hours. Yeah. And it's so helpful because usually a lot of the questions I get asked is, how do you give written notes or how do you give notes? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, come join us and, yeah. and hear people give notes. And then you will also learn how to yeah. give notes. And I mean, what, what, what I love about, you know, the dramaturgy cohort that, that you created, uh, this is what, the third one? And this is the, the second year second of the year. dramaturgy intensive. Yeah. Yes. And what I love about the dramaturgy intensive is, is that, I, I mean, literally, you know, I, 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 I feel like the strengths of, of this city is that there are a lot of phenomenal actors in the city. Absolutely phenomenal, mind-blowing actors in the city. A lot of phenomenal playwrights who aren't getting produced enough in the city. Um, what we're missing, though, is that we need more dramaturgs and we need more directors. And so um, I what was so exciting about the dramaturgy intensive is that Literally, you are creating a pool of dramaturgs for all these theaters in town to pull from, or and and theaters outside of town as well to pull from. And I think that to me that is going to be a major shift in how work is developed and produced in this city. If if people you know take the gift and and you know and mm -hmm. embrace it and consume it, yeah, um, it will really shift and transform things. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And the the dramaturgy intensive is an annual program that um, that I came up with during the pandemic with all my extra time. And essentially, it's uh, it's twelve months. You meet twice per month, and we cover um, published plays and very well known playwrights like Susan Lloyd Parks, Adrian Kennedy, Maria Irene Fornes, and then we also cover new play development process. Um, with plays that are in the middle of being written, as well as moderation and facilitation. Um, and so it's it's a pretty comprehensive opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really has been such a gift to me. Mm -hmm. I've just learned so much about my practice and, um, and I'm further developing what I do. But that a lot of it really comes down to um, something I'm starting to call um, queering dramaturgy mm, and this idea of affirmative criticism. Right. And um, in my experience over the last 20 years of working with playwrights, it makes me feel so old when I say it. Well, I <laughs> it really has been years. that long. I think because I really started in college. Yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that was 
it was my experience of if you give somebody analytical criticism that's dry mm. about something that they are deeply connected to, right. it is going to be hard for them right. to take it in. Right. And so I figured out that I needed to focus on what is working mm -hmm. rather than what is not. Right. 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 And that I need to dig up and excavate what is there, but is not being fully explored. Right. And, and through that, mm -hmm. the playwright will realize what needs to go and what needs to stay. Right. And I don't need to be a part of that process. Right. Right. And I think, you know, it, it, it's great that you mentioned, I mean, you know, just in terms of, you know, critiques and criticism, focusing on what's working, but also focusing on what the possibilities are mm -hmm. and giving the playwright as many possibilities as you can, as outlandish as the possibilities may be. And they don't have to use any of them, but a possibility might jog something in their mind that they can attach to as well. So I, you know, I think, you know, again, because of the, the nature of our culture, we want to tear things apart. Oh, right. Instead of like, don't do it. You know, instead <laughs> of like, you know, and, and deconstruction has its place, but you also want to build or, or give people the blocks to build something up as well. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, so I mean, affirmative criticism um, is the way to go. And I love this idea of, you know, querying dramaturgy. I think that's copyright that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm working on it, you know, <laughs> but this idea that, that we, we come from a wider range, there's like a right. wider perspective, right? right? More is welcome here. Right. Queer is all encompassing, right. right? It is nothing that is, it is anything that is not the norm. It is so all encompassing, right. right? So you take that and you look at the play from that perspective. And, and also if you take Eleanor Fuchs' visit to a small planet, you yeah, know, kind yeah. of same vibe, mm -hmm. right? Um, which, with which uh, listeners, if you have, if you are not familiar with Eleanor Fuchs' visit to a small planet, it is one of the best documents for developing work um, mm -hmm. that we have out there. Thank you to Eleanor Fuchs yes, <laughs> for all you, of what you, she's done you, for this you, field. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we'll we'll probably do a shout out for a famous dramaturg every time. Right. We'll, we'll do Eleanor Fuchs today. Um, but just this idea that we get to build our own planet when we're writing a play. And we get to decide what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what what notes we're going to use, what we're not going to use, um, you know. And the idea of I love some of the tools like that we've talked about. Another one that I love to recommend that I've heard you say too is this play is missing a scene. It's missing a scene between here and here, and, here. here. Right. and you don't really say what that needs to be. But you just say it's missing a scene, and then you leave it to them, yeah. and they can make decisions about that, yeah. right? Uh, another one that I love is move it around, move your scenes around. Where is your focus? Whatever is at the beginning is going to be the focus. So move things and see how the story changes when you move things around. Um, and those are some of my favorites, actually, yeah. just really broad notes uh, to give playwrights that allows them to make the decisions, mm -hmm. but gives them something to work with. And also, right? you know, getting playwrights to understand that a play is never complete and mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I think a play is done when you've answered all the questions you can answer at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's done. Yeah. It's done. Sit it on. Yeah. 
you know, um, because I do think that that there's a tendency to want to make everything perfect. And none of us is Tom Stopper. Because uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he thinks he's perfect. And, and so, um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, a, a play is never finished. And that's okay. You know, I think you know you're done when you've answered all the questions you can answer right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's time to, you know, send it off and see if it, you know, creates its own life as a production and, and then move on to the next thing. Yeah. But I think there's a tendency to want to to workshop a play to death. And I think I've, I, I've seen plays that I love lose their fire. Yes. Because they've been overdeveloped. Mm-hmm. So I think you need to know when to stop. Yeah, you know, and I and I think the big the big judgment call for the playwright is when this is no longer fun, mm-hmm. then you might want to take a break. Yeah, from it. So yeah, definitely. Talking. I think it also that also speaks to choosing your development experiences yeah. wisely. Wisely. Mm-hmm. Because it could go really wrong. Yeah. And um, you know, that's that's sort of next steps for for working title in terms of how do we make uh healthy connections with producers so that we can continue doing this work in Mm -hmm. a way that's going to be like helpful and fun for everyone right right? Right. um which for us so far has been collaborating with producing partners right Right. and offering uh, a lot of dramaturgical consulting in many ways Right. right um oh and i think that Producers should not be afraid to reach out to play, new play incubators to ask help, to at ask for all. consulting. And, and you know, we might be one of the few in the South, but we're not the only ones. And know? I do think, you know, I think for 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 any, you know, theater company that that, that really wants to create vibrant work, mm. it's like, God, you've got to have a dramaturg in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've got to have a dramaturg. Um, even, you know, for, for, for things that are like not nuclear development, but like for productions, have a fucking dramaturg in the room. Mm-hmm. It will add so much to that process and, and that experience. Um, the challenge of course, is that, you know, a lot of folks aren't used to dramaturgs being in the room. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, a bit of a learning curve in terms of how to, how to, you know, negotiate those power dynamics. But I, but I think theater companies that, consistently engage in dramaturgical practice creates some of the most exciting theater. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I really do. Because it's also about maintaining a curiosity about the work and always being aware that there's still questions to ask Mm -hmm. and that most likely something has potentially been missed. I mean, I've had conversations with people about like a costume being like cut at the last minute because nobody realized that it was summer. Right. <laughs> like no one realized. And it's like, yeah, that may have been someone else's job to figure out, mm-hmm. but like a dramaturg is there to be like, hold up. Hold up. We missed Man. something here. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. that the context of the work is the, the dramaturg's role. Right. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that someone else couldn't have figured that out, but right. the dramaturg is supposed to be there to make sure that all the pieces come together cohesively. Right. Um, and not just like some people might say, well, that's the director's job. I'm like, no, not really. Right. Cause the dramaturg isn't just thinking about 
blocking and narrative and acting and all those things. The dramaturg is thinking about the playwright, is thinking about the play right. itself, is thinking about the context of the play, the history of the play. I mean, there's just like the layers that the dramaturg is responsible for connecting right. go much deeper than much anyone deeper. else on the team. Yeah. And I mean, as a director, I approach directing from a dramaturgical lens. Like I do dramaturgical work first before I even, you know, and months in advance before I even, you know, get into a rehearsal room. Um, and a lot of directors don't work like that. Um, but even I would love to have a fucking dramaturg there because I know there's something that I missed. Yeah. I know there's something that I missed. And I think, you know, I, and I think the challenge will be, you know, guiding directors on how to work with dramaturgs. Yeah. You know, mm. uh, and keeping their egos intact as they do it. It's like, yeah. you know, how do you work with this person? Because this mm. person literally can be your best friend in a production process if you know how to negotiate that relationship. I think a lot of it comes down to how the how theater is structured and yeah. the, the hierarchical structure exactly. just does not work for new play development. It it's I mean, I don't think it works, period. I don't think it works but, at all, but I'm yeah. not an expert in that other stuff, right. right? But what I will say about the rooms that I am in is that the director does not get to be the lead. Mm -hmm. The director is literally organizing and moderating right. the space. Right. And the dramaturg is moderating like the conversation. Right. And like they're both working with the playwright and it's not about them or their singular visions, right? Mm -hmm. It's about coming together in support of this baby right, right. <laughs> that is being birthed, right. right? So in the workshops, I always have the playwright sit in the middle and mm -hmm. the director sit on one side and the dramaturg sit on the other. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I do this is because the spatial relationship to me is really key. Right, right. Um, I don't want the director and the dramaturg trying to have a relationship outside the playwright right? and then make the playwright feel ganged up on for some reason. Cause I've seen that happen a ton mm -hmm. and it's like, your role is not to gang up on the playwright. No one should be attacking the playwright. Right, period, right, right? right. If the playwright is being defensive about something, then you need to look at that and see where the, 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 the source of that from. comes mm -hmm. from. Because it, because again, it's like, and I think, they gang up on the playwright because some dramaturgs and directors have an idea that in the development process, it's their job to fix a play. Yeah. And that is not your fucking job. Mm. There is no problem, right? <laughs> there is That's no problem. The key. There is yeah, no problem. Yeah, you are not a script. Only a opportunity. I'm going to say this too, because <laughs> a dramaturg is not a script doctor. Mm. You know, you're not here to fix anything. Mm. You're here to help facilitate the story that the playwright wants to tell. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really, really important thing. And I think for some playwrights and some, for some directors, some dramaturgs, you got to put your ego to the side and realize that you are here in service of, of the process and in service of, of the playwright's work. I like to acknowledge that, like, I'm human, right? So I will have things that I want. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone will. But I don't talk about it mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't right? matter. Yeah. But it's really important. Whenever that happens to me, I go, oh, yeah, okay, Amber, this is what you would write. And, and that's what it is. Play. And that's the key. You have to, <laughs> and I always tell playwrights this, too, when they get notes. I'm like, you have to, if the, and this is the hardest thing for any playwright, and I'm just saying this because it's a hard thing for me as well. Um, when you receive notes, you have, and this is a hard filter to develop, you have to figure out, okay, what note, are 
are actually about the play that I'm writing versus the notes about the play that this person wants to see. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Yes. That's a and that is not an easy thing to do. No. But it's a skill that you have to develop as a playwright. You know, being able to figure out that these notes are about the play that I'm writing. Yeah. That means they were in on this. Those notes, great, but it's not a, that's not my play. You know. And I think that takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. And I think that's why, you know, having groups of people that read your script and give you feedback and right. you can kind of vibe with what what notes work for you and what that is a that is a skill yes. that every playwright has to develop yeah. over their career and will probably never be done, mm -hmm. you know, but it's definitely something that I encourage playwrights. Like it is your job to figure out which notes are helpful to yeah. you. And it is also your job to remind yourself that you never have to take every note that's given to you. Not right. ever. You don't right. have to take any if you don't want to, but right. it's, it's a decision you're making to take the note, you know? So follow your gut, follow, follow your, your instincts, gut. Always. right? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. I, we're all out of time, and I, I don't want to take up too much more. <laughs> but I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're such a dear friend of mine. Oh. And uh, what you do for, for this field is so special. And I thank you so much. Oh, th thank you. And I just want to you know encourage everybody. It's like, you, you know, create the work, find your communities, and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, j just, j just be there to support each other because none of this shit is easy. Right. So, you know, but, but having community really helps make mm. it easier. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for that. It is all about community. Yeah. <laughs> you just listened to an episode of Table Work, How Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. A very special thank you to WTP member Minka Wiltz for our intro theme and vocals. Cup of C designs for our show graphic and you. Thank you for listening. Tablework is a podcast brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you heard today, you can be a part of it. Support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Tablework.